Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer or artist and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field, along with contest winners and a few surprise guests. Today, we are speaking with Writers of the Future winner from 1997, published in volume 13, Alan Smale. Alan writes science fiction and fantasy, and he currently focuses on alternate history and historical fantasy. What to me is really amazing is that he also works with NASA, and we will um, let him explain all of that, how that ties in. He studied in Oxford, and then when he came over here, he's been able to apply what he both studied and his, uh, one of his favorite uh, avocations of reading to create his historical fiction that he writes. Welcome, Alan. Well, well, thank you very much for having me on. It's a pleasure. Yeah, it was great when I saw that um, bundle that Kevin Anderson with Wordfire Press published, and I, and I saw your name with Alan Smell. I know that name. And then I looked back and found you that you were a winner in volume 13. And so I was, I was so excited to be able to reach out to you and, and connect up and, and do this podcast. So I gave a, a like a not even a a 25 cent overview of you of your background. So a little bit about more about your work with NASA, because I, I, I'm always fascinated with anything and you know, everything NASA related. Okay, well, yes, I've always been interested in physics and in astronomy, though that's what my degrees were in uh, originally. So I have a bachelor's in physics and a PhD in astrophysics. And I'd always wanted to work for NASA, apparently. I really myself don't remember this, but I have school friends who remember me saying at the age of 13 that I was going to work for NASA one day. And I grew up in England, as you can probably tell from the accent. I, so I grew up in the north of England in a pretty depressed area of Yorkshire. And so my friends didn't really pay much attention to my youthful ravings. And I don't even remember saying them, as I said. But I, I, it's, as it turned out, I did end up working for NASA. And so I've been over in the States now since the late 80s. I came over to work on a shuttle mission, actually, at the Goddard Space Flight Center, and it turned out that I've stayed at, at NASA ever since, and I stayed at Goddard for most of that time. Uh, there was a brief five-year period when I went downtown and worked at NASA headquarters, but essentially, yes, that's been my career path is, uh, is, uh, as a research scientist and most of that time for NASA. That's, that's, I said that's fascinating. So now you write mostly alternate history, so is that to provide some like counterpoint to your real life of of real science and real history being created or how's that work yes it started out as being like relief i've always been a history buff even when i was young i was always uh, doing a lot of history reading as well as uh, as well as the science kind of things so i've always had that history background but um what happened is, I, well, in the early 90s, I decided to get really serious about the writing. I used to do quite a bit of writing as a kid, like writing Star Trek adventures of my own fan fiction and that kind of thing. And then in my early 30s, I decided that I was really going to go for this and try and try and uh, and see what I could do in the science fiction world. And so I did start off with writing science fiction. And uh, I quickly found that there was this kind of clash almost with the day job. It used the same part of my brain. If I'm writing hard science fiction, I'm thinking in the same kind of way. I'm researching the same kind of stuff in a way as I am during the day job. And it just felt like too much of the same thing. And I grew increasingly interested in some aspects of history. And so over the, over the past years, in fact, probably over the last 15 years, my output changed until I'm writing almost exclusively alternate history, historical fantasy, twisted history. And it is a bit of a break. It does use a different part of my brain, even 
know, I guess the research side of things so I do in a very analytical way, but it does feel like a complete change. When I sit down at my computer to, to write my alternate history stories or books, I am completely taken out of my work world and I'm doing something else. I get it. So now on your alternate history, like you've got your trilogy, Clash of Eagles, Eagle in Exile, and Eagle in Empire, which um, mm -hmm. were written, so that's the uh, Roman invasion of ancient America. So is the Rome because of that's your, you're very familiar with the, um, that area from growing up there in England and then come over to America where you are now, or how, or is that just a favorite time period for you, or how does that work? Yeah. Very much so. Uh, when I was a kid, we used to go on, on family holidays just within the British Isles. And so we spent a lot of time going to Hadrian's Wall and that kind of area. And there are a lot of Roman ruins in England, actually, in a, in a comparatively small island. So we went to Bath and we went to a lot of the other places which had a strong Roman component. And it did fire up my imagination from an early age. I've always been interested in the Romans and, uh, uh, and the history of England and Roman Britain and that kind of thing. And so when I came to write the Clash of Eagles novella that ended up being the Clash of Eagles trilogy, uh, I, for some reason it made sense to me that I really wanted to work with the Romans. And, and if I was going to do a, a work of that length uh, to, to focus on, on the Roman side of things and, and have the Romans coming over to North America and seeing things in a very different way than the, the English, the, the French and the Spanish and other people that came over from Europe. Right. So is that the one, was that one of the trilogy there that won your um, Sidewise Award? What happened with that was that I wrote a novella, uh, and that was called A Clash of Eagles with the A in front of it. And I wrote that for an original anthology, uh, an anthology of original novellas, essentially. And that's called Panverse 2, edited by Dario Ciriello. And... Uh, that that novella ended up winning the Sidewise Award in 2011. The Sidewise Award is a very prestigious alternate history award, obviously. And, uh, and that was a great boost to me. Although even then, I'd already decided that I wanted to turn this into a novel. And so I was already working on the novel when, uh, when I got the Sidewise Award. And uh, I, I went to Taos Toolbox, which is this uh, two-week writer's um, workshop, I guess, with a bunch of other aspiring writers, journeyman writers, although I'd already published quite a few stories by then, it was great to go and do a workshop. And there people were very encouraging about the story and, in, uh, you know, gave, gave me a lot of fire and energy to go on with it. And so what ended up happening, to cut a long story short, is that it became a trilogy and uh, you named the books. I sold the trilogy to Random House Del Rey. Uh, my editor there was Mike Braff. He was a great guy, and he helped me a lot with the with, with the books going forward. He was a great editor for me. And so, yeah, Clash of Eagles ended up coming out in 2015, and then Eagle in Exile and Eagle and Empire at one-year intervals after that. And I was very happy that the entire trilogy then got a second nomination for the Sidewise Award uh, in 2017. Which is great. Yeah, it's alternate history is... It's a great subgenre, and what's really nice about it is if the person writing it really does know facts that he then builds and weaves in with his alternate history. And that's, that's the, obviously the Sidewise Award is, is uh, validation of that ability that you've got, which is great. Now, so that was in 2010. And now back yeah. in 1997 is when we met you where you were winner um, of the Writers of the Future. So in the bio at the point that I read, you know, of your story Wings, 
By that time, you've recently sold stories, A Wizard's Dozen, A Nightmare's Dozen, Marion Zimmer Bradley's Fantasy Magazine, and Terminal Fright. Um, mm-hmm. So how long had you been writing and, and um, selling when you actually won the contest? How, like, what's your beginning curve as a writer? Um, as I mentioned earlier, I started writing seriously again in 1990 once I kind of got my feet under the table in the States and decided I was going to be staying for a while. And so I was writing and writing and submitting quite a few things and not really getting anywhere for a while. Uh, I did submit to the Writers of the Future contest six times prior to the time that I actually won it. And so I did give, give that quite a bit of effort. And then all of a sudden things broke for me. All of a sudden, I, I guess I found the groove or I found my voice or something and things began to sell. And so Wings, the Writers of the Future story that, that ended up being published in the anthology, uh, that, I wrote that and submitted that in December 1995. And it came in second in the, in the first quarter of 96. And so, of course, then time goes by, a whole year goes by, and the, uh, and the ceremony where, where we all went to Kennedy Space Center and we ha- had the fabulous week with the writers of the future, uh, that wasn't until September of 1997. And so by that time, by the time I was writing the bio, I'd actually sold several other stories, and the stories uh, that you've mentioned here to the, to the places mentioned here. So that was when things were really starting to take off for me, and it was really great that I had the boost of the writers of the future. I'm sure it didn't hurt that in my submission letters, in my query letters when I was sending out manuscripts, I could put that I was a white writers of the future winner from early on in, in 1996. And I'm pretty sure that must have helped catch the eye of editors when, when I was submitting. Yeah, we've definitely, especially now after 36, now almost 37 years, it, it, uh, it is, that has borne out to, uh, to be a factor for writers being able to say that they're a winner. But now the contest has gotten so um, accepted and recognized as, uh, because of the fact that it's blind judging, that when a person can say that they're a finalist in the contest, their work is taken out of slush piles. And we have now, since you were um, entering the contest, we're now up to over 175 countries with entries, and we literally get thousands of entries every quarter now. Um, it's, wow, that's it, amazing. It's grown a lot. And um, obviously we've got some, some great judges that really continue to, to, you know, to pass that torch forward that um, the original judges were there. Who, who taught your workshop when you were um, there? When I was there, it was Dave Warburton and Algis Budris who, who taught the uh, taught the workshop, and they were great. They were they were fabulous. Yeah, yeah. Algis um, was the original coordinating judge, and now Dave Wolverton is the current um, coordinating judge. So, yeah. um, now at the at the workshop itself, so had you been to uh, Kennedy Space Center? That's where the that's where the award ceremony was, right? Yes, yeah. it was the first time that they had it at Kennedy. I think it moved just that year. And it was great because we did get a behind-the-scenes tour and we went to the shuttle pads and all of that kind of thing. I had actually been there once before because I mentioned I came over to the States to work on a shuttle mission. And that was the X-ray astronomy uh, instrument called BBXRT, the Broadband X-ray Telescope, which went up on the shuttle in 1990. And I was actually at Kennedy for that launch. And I was working on the payload just before it got launched in the shuttle. So there was a a shuttle launch when we were at uh, the, the Writers of the Future and we all went to see it. 
so I guess that was probably a couple of days before the ceremony we saw Space Shuttle Atlantis get launched to Mir. And that was actually my, my second shuttle launch, but it was still extremely exciting. I had been to Kennedy before, but it was great to go back and not be working and be with writers and uh, and meet a lot of the people who who were judges who I, whose names I'd seen on books, but was you know, obviously I'd never met them before. That yeah. was the first time I met Kevin Anderson and Gregory Benford and Tim Powers. He was great. He gave us a talk, uh, gave all the writers a talk while he was there, uh, and various other people who I've come to meet more in the meantime. But uh, I was really starstruck when I was there for the first time and having my first experience with pro authors. Sure. One thing that was... Um really memorable at that event is when we were there watching the uh, the uh, actual launch, Jack Williamson, who had been writing about space travel since the uh, 30s, had never seen a live launch. He'd never seen a live spaceship, a rocket ship, anything. So he was, mm -hmm. even though he was in his 80s at that point, he was like a little kid. When we rode there and we were in the uh, uh, bleachers there we had for, for the older gentleman there, and he was there, and it was just like a, um, for him, just a dream come true because he'd never seen one. And we had some of the other judges who had seen something from a distance but never been that close to the actual launch. So it was, it was, it was quite a memorable uh, weekend there, that whole, that whole time there at uh, Kennedy Space Center. Yeah, and it's funny because I saw a third shuttle launch a few years later, and that was a night launch as well. So all three shuttle launches I saw took place at night. I'd never seen one go up during the day. Wow. Yeah. So it was, uh, and it was also interesting too with that one there where you see the signs posted, stay away from the edges of the, uh, of the swamp and, and the rivers there because of the alligators and snakes. And yeah. then um, when they had the actual countdown itself, hearing the, the loudspeaker with a 10, 9, 8, you know, was just seeing it because we we're, even though we were still a mile away, it was, we were the closest civilians. And mm -hmm. um, it was just so special just being right out there in the, uh, in the Florida Everglades area that had the, um, seeing it and that, that delay between when you actually see the light and hear the sound and just, mm -hmm. just, I mean, even thinking about now, I still get the tingles, you know, just because yeah. it was just so dynamic. It was so special. Yeah. And the way the sound reverberates off your chest, almost, yeah. you can feel it. It's kind of slamming into your, into your breast. I know it was awesome. <laughs> very, very powerful. So now with, um, the workshop itself that was taught by Dave and by um, Algis, and it was basically um, Elwin Hubbard had put together several essays because he'd been long since helping aspiring writers, even back from his essays he wrote back in the, in the 40s. Um, and Algis put it, his workshop together against those three basic things of, of um, story ideas, you know, of how you get a, here's this apparently worthless object or something like that, which is from... Um, a Story Out of the Hat, which is an essay that Owen Hubbard wrote about that trash can that turned into Kabanka. And then there was um, uh, Meet a Stranger, which was something that he learned from watching, what's his name? He wrote the um, Call of the Wild, Jack London. He, from his knowledge of Jack London, how he got story ideas. And so he used uh, that. And then um, research, you know, the importance of research, which you've definitely already talked about that, the, the value of that and the need for that. But any things that you remember particularly from the, the workshop that impressed you or that you've found has helped with your career as a writer? Uh, one of the things I remember about the workshop is that we were told, as you say, we were told to use common objects or objects in the room as story prompts. 
And in the room where we were, where we were having the lesson, there were these kind of really interesting light fixtures that looked like domes affixed to the ceiling. And that was the that was what I chose as the prompt for my story. My story was called The Flower. And it was a, and the dome was actually, it was a dome on another planet. So it was a science fictional story about a, a colony and uh, a sentient flower and various various other aspects that I won't get into. But that was... Uh, that was inspired by that story prompt, and I ended up selling that story to, I think it's called Escape. It's an Australian online magazine uh, after the fact. Uh, I did learn about writing very quickly. Uh, I certainly, because we had to write and turn in our stories in a very short space of time. And I don't think I was used to writing quite that fast with quite such a deadline and quite such, quite such a burn. Um, I, I remember the advice being extremely good. I remember one of the things that was useful was hearing their experience of being writers and, how, and the ups and downs of the writing profession and how you had to be ready for that and just essentially keep going, keep powering on. And uh, even if you, you're obviously going to get rejected sometime, all writers do, just about all writers do. And I still get rejections now and I know other people do as well. So it's it was it was good to hear that from people who were actually inside the industry and hear how it worked working with agents and so forth. And also, I remember the lectures from Kevin Anderson uh, and and Tim Powers in particular, where Kevin, who's a very forthright kind of guy and and has this huge word count, he writes books after books after books. <clears throat> and I've come to know him much better now. He's uh, he's the guy who's in charge of Wordfire, which is where my latest book has come out from. Kevin at that time, his main advice was like, shut up and write, quit thinking around and just, just <laughs> apply yourself to the page and work and work and work. And then there's Tim Powers, who comes from a completely different sort of almost magic realism perspective. And his advice was things like, have a clown on stilts come through with his head on fire. And of course, we dutifully wrote that down. Obviously, that was just an example. But Tim <laughs> Powers, you can see that in Tim Powers' works. And that was one of the reasons I was happy to meet him, because he has a really interesting uh, aspect on history and alternate history as well. And so he may have been one of the people that I was looking at when I first started uh, thinking about writing history myself. Uh, so a lot of his works are very fantastic and they do have surprises like that on every page. And so those are <laughs> like almost the opposite ends of the writing spectrum, but also good pieces of writing advice in a way. Yeah, and that's one thing that's been really good and valuable with the whole program itself is when people are there, the winners are there getting their... Um, I guess various lectures from the, all the judges, and now we have upwards of 20 different judges that will speak. There's no like, this is how you write a story. It's like, okay, if you're interested in alternate history, you're going to listen to Tim Powers maybe a bit more because of he's so successful. He's got his whole thing. You know, he looks for that hole in history. He's going to fill that hole with his alternate, you know, outcome on that. Uh, where yeah. you've got some of the other judges like Larry Niven, you know, with his Ringworld series. And, you know, so he's created this amazing science fiction universe, whereas you got someone else like Brandon Sanderson, who is a master of creating universes too, who's got his, his take on it. So everybody has their different, you know, view how they, they do and create and, and have success with that winners can go and take and choose. And you can also learn new stuff. You can find, oh, I wasn't even thinking of that. And that's one thing that is really nice too. It's, it's not, this is how you write, but here are some ways that successful writers have accomplished it. And you've now obviously established your niche and how you approach stuff. But um, I think one thing about the contest, it, it provides that, that overview of, of what you can do and not like this is how you have to do it, but if you're going to do it, this is, 
here's here's a, a path that you can follow. Yeah, it shows many and varied examples of how to do it, which is is something you get if you hang around with writers at cons. You can kind of acquire that. Yeah. But I have a feeling that the writers of the future contest and the lucky winners who were there to actually uh, be there and, and hear from room, rooms full of writers very early on in their career. I'm sure that a lot of us got a real boost from that. And it, it just it did help us to, to leap forward in our careers. Yeah, that's I mean, that's that's the aspiration of it. That's that's why it was created by Mr. Hubbard to be able to, to do that and to see, you know, just a great future in science fiction. And we just had a great review that came in from uh, one of the library review journals that's saying that no single source has provided more for the for science fiction and fantasy than the writers of the future uh, program. So that's you know, that's quite a validation. But also 37 years um, we are definitely the, the longest running and most successful program. And like I said, with thousands of entries a quarter now, it's, um, mm-hmm. it's, it, it makes it quite defensible to make that claim. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's quite impressive. I actually looked back at the list of previous winners, and I discovered that several of my friends and colleagues now, people who I hang out with all the time at cons, were previous winners. And it just hadn't come up in conversation because it had been a while ago. Like Caroline Ives Gilman was, uh, was a winner in 1987, and I, I didn't know that. People like Nick DiCario and David Levine and Jay Lake and Mike Cole and Kim Zimring and Diana Rowland. whole bunch of people who I now see regularly at cons. And we all came, as it turns out, we all had a, a similar path in a way. And at one point, we were all involved with the Rise of the Future contest and winners and went through that. Yeah, it's, um, it's very good with that. So now with respect to um, acapella. So I love that. I, I went before doing this interview. I went and, and listened to one of your um, performances at NASA, and uh, you know that was I went. I went what's what's he sound? Because like? I love. I used to do that myself too, a long time ago. And so, how did you get into that? And it's. Um, I mean, it's fascinating. I love the fact there's that type of of art and creativity that is also part of your life. It's just an, a, maybe it's just another aspect of the of um, your arts in general, but how'd you get into it and how is it that you maintained your work with acapella singing? Mm. Yes, okay, well, the group is called The Chromatics. Uh, you can find us on the web at www.thechromatics.com. And we're a, a six-person group, three men and three women. It's all a cappella, no instruments, obviously. And we've been around for quite the while now, since, since the mid-90s again, in fact. And a lot of the same people have been with the group the whole time, which gives us a lot of staying power and a lot of experience that a lot of other groups don't have. A lot of a cappella groups come through college and they break up and come back together again. And you see them advertising for new members all the time. We have a solid core of stability there. And uh, the group, I, we first got together, it was actually originally a group that was at the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center and connected to Goddard's Music and Drama Club. And so that's, that was the original basis of the group. But after a while, we decided to cut it loose and make it its own thing. And so now it's completely separate from NASA. But it did come out, it was birthed at NASA originally. And so my wife is in the group and a couple of my best friends. And we've been singing for a long time. We have something like nine CDs that are out at the moment. Uh, but one of our most popular CDs actually combines music and astronomy. It's called Astro Capella 2.0. And there are 13 songs there about the universe, essentially. Uh, they're all astronomically correct. It's in use in schools across the country. And so a lot of the gigs and performances we get are actually 
coming full circle, we've been invited back to NASA several times to perform there. We performed at the Millennium Stage down in Washington, D.C., at NASA events that they've had at the Kennedy Center and other festivals in the D.C. area and uh, museums and other places. So that gets us a lot of performances. It gets the word out there. It enables us to do a lot of community outreach. It enables us to, to bring astronomy to people and, and, and spread education and spread the word. And so it's really great from all aspects. It's great from the, from the friendship side of things, from the tuneful side. Uh, you'll have noticed that the two things we've talked about so far, my astronomy career and my writing career, for both of those, I'm essentially spending a lot of time sitting down at a laptop. That's what I do. When I'm singing, I'm standing up, I'm with people, I'm jumping <laughs> up and down because we're a fairly dynamic group. So there's a lot of you know movement and dancing as well. Uh, and so... Uh, and so that is something that's completely different. It gets me up, it gets me talking to people, and it gets me out into into places that I wouldn't get otherwise, and I, I thoroughly enjoy performing with the group. That's great. So now on um, your writing schedule, how does that work? Because you've got now a career. It's a, it's a full-time job with, with NASA, correct? Yes. Good. So you got that. You do your, um, your singing um, how do you fit in writing with with this uh, with your career? That's a great question. I spend a lot of time doing it in evenings and weekends. Uh, I am married with no kids. My wife is a photographer, so she spends a lot of time doing photography stuff, going out and doing shoots and processing the photos afterwards. So she has her own thing that she does. Uh, I, I'm in awe of people who are parents and still manage to write because I'm not sure how that would work at all. I'm pretty sure I wouldn't have a writing career if we'd had kids. But that does free up some time at evenings and weekends. And so that's essentially it. That's that's when I write. I write in the off hours and I'm, I think I'm quite determined. I'm quite focused when I'm writing. I can write quite a lot in an hour, quite a lot in a day when I'm doing that. Uh, I guess I'm on the Kevin Anderson model. I just shut up and write and don't mess around a whole lot. I do a fair amount of research, obviously, which is another another side to this. But I think I'm very productive when I write. And, uh, well, I must be productive because I managed to crank out a book a year with the day job. So, And these are not short books, actually. So. <laughs> which is <laughs> great. So now, yeah. what's your basic um, sequence on putting together and writing an alternate history? Because... What I try to do with these podcasts is pick a different aspect, different niche that or a different um, something about writing that they won't otherwise find out about unless they actually hear it from someone who actually does it. So what's the, what are your steps? What's your process on putting together an alternate history book? Uh, it comes from the idea and the idea can be either a person or a place or a period. Uh, the thing that got me going with the Clash of Eagles series was some reading that I was doing about Cahokia and the Mississippian culture, uh, which was prevalent in the Mississippi and Ohio valleys uh, in the in the 10th through, well, 11th through 13th centuries. And I was really fascinated by the Mississippian culture, and I thought, surely people must have written about this culture in a speculative fiction environment, and they hadn't, so it looked like that was wide open for me. So in that case, it was pretty much the... It was the idea of a place and a milieu that I wanted to write in. And for some reason, it was just obvious to me that the invading power, that the, that the group coming in from the outside and meeting this culture uh, would be the Romans. 
because, not to get off on a tangent, but I think there's no particular reason why the Roman Empire was doomed to fall uh, in the 3rd, 4th, and 5th centuries. A lot of other empires lasted a whole lot longer, and I really wanted to write with the Romans, and that's so the ultimate history aspect of this there. So there it came from an idea. In other cases, I look back at my stories and found that, like the short stories, I've had about 40 short stories published now, and in a lot of cases it was either a personality or a place that inspired those stories. And then I just start riffing on the ideas or putting a couple of ideas together and seeing what works on them. Uh, the books that I'm working on now, um, I have an alternate Apollo Cold War thriller that I'm trying to sell. And that's out on submission at various places. And for there, it was my fascination with the Apollo project, which has been a lifelong thing. And also a particular idea for a character that I wanted to put in that project. Uh, the book that came out recently, Rick Wilbur and myself collaborated on this. This is The Wandering Warriors that's out from Wordfire Press and originally came out as an Asimov story. Um, in, in that case, that, that story had a really weird genesis because uh, what happened was Rick and I were both alternate history writers. We both write in a similar way. And people were joking around with us and saying, oh, you two should combine your passions and mine, of course, being Romans and his being baseball. So the idea would be that we would write a story about Roman baseball. And we laughed and said that nothing could ever come of that, mashing up those two ideas. That would never work. And we sat and thought about it. And, of course, eventually we came up with an idea. And I think it's actually a pretty good idea. And it ended up working really well. And so selling to Asimov's and then selling again to Wordfire Press afterwards. So that was a mashup of two different ideas. So I think one thing I would tell readers not to be writers, potential writers, not to be afraid of, is the idea that you can mash up things that don't necessarily work together. I have the Roman Empire. I have the Roman Empire in the 13th century in its classical form, north, moving into North America. And I think that was an appealing idea to a lot of readers. It was certainly appealing. I got an agent and a publisher on the strength of that idea. And it was something that people hadn't seen before in the way that I did it. And so I, I think that was, uh, I think the compelling idea that came out of mashing up those two quite different, uh, two different themes, I think worked well for me. And I think the mashup of baseball and Romans worked well in Wandering Warriors as well. So I think the idea, I, I think maybe the advice would be to think outside the box and don't be happy with the first idea that crosses your mind. Think how you can twist it and make it more complicated. Bring in something from somewhere else or a character that you wouldn't necessarily have expected to see in that milieu and see if you can make it work. Speculative fiction is very much a literature of ideas. And a lot of the good ideas have already been done. So you have to think a little bit harder and figure out where your story, where the, the story that only you can tell is going to come from. That makes good sense and it helps. Now, with respect to um, the history part of it, the, the factual history, or as best as we can tell, factual history tying in with uh, the fantastic, do you have any particular um, rule of thumb on how much fact you have to use before you weave in the fiction? Uh, for Cahokia, they've done a lot of archaeological and anthropological investigations there. And so we know what ancient Cahokia looked like. And I used the street plan, the, essentially used the street plan as we know it. And I made this rule with myself that I wasn't allowed to change anything physical about the environment. Uh, when you read about Cahokia and about all of North America, because the books go everywhere in North America by the end, uh, I tried to make those parts as accurate to the archaeology and anthropology as I could. 
And part of that was just the way I am. And part of it was that I wanted to be respectful to the cultures that I was portraying. And I've taken a couple of liberties here and there, but I think it'll be obvious what those liberties are to the reader. And otherwise, I wanted to make things as accurate as they could possibly be. Uh, and so that was... Uh, and likewise with the Romans, I had to extrapolate a little bit. I'm portraying Romans who are quite a ways beyond. They've had several hundred years more of, of, of evolution in that time. And Roman culture was fairly stable a lot of the time. When you look at Roman history, you can find maps of Roman camps from 400 years apart, and they're essentially the same camp. And the weaponry didn't change that much over several hundred years. So I think I was justified in keeping a lot of that fairly similar. And they used more steel than the actual Romans of the second and third centuries did. But it's recognizably a Roman background. And so I tried to be as true to the Roman background as possible. So obviously it's speculative fiction and I have to take a few leaps, imaginative leaps here and there. But as far as the hardware is concerned and as far as the way the people think is concerned, I try to make it as accurate as possible. And now more recently with the Apollo book, there's obviously a wealth of stuff there. There I almost have the opposite problem. With the the, the Cahokians and Mississippian culture didn't really leave a written record, so I had to kind of read between the lines somewhere and try and figure out some things there. And with with the Apollo era, of course, there's documentation. There's a huge amount of documentation online, and there the problem was figuring out where to stop researching and where to just go with what I had and uh, and write what I had. But there too, all of the hardware is as accurate as I could make it. I'm obviously not writing a thesis on this. I'm writing a story, but whenever I put in a mechanical detail or a physics detail or something like that, I tried to make that as true as possible because I knew that with my background, if and when this book ever gets published, people are going to be looking for any errors that I might have made. So I tried to try to make as, as few or, or none as possible. Yeah, and now we're the now we're in the uh, time period where everything can be checked by going fact-checking or quote-unquote fact-checking on Google. Whether what they're fact-checking is actually a correct fact that they're using to compare to, they still will look at it's like, is that how that worked? And they'll quickly check mm -hmm. and see. And, you know, Wikipedia reduces down to whoever was the last post that somebody didn't correct is now what the new, new truth is. So, but a lot of people are lazy yeah. enough just to stop with, with uh, Wikipedia and not actually do proper research. So it is, it is a definite factor with um, people being more emboldened to uh, go out and just assert their ignorance with considerable velocity and uh, um, no concern about you know, any effect that they're creating on it. So that, right. that Wikipedia is, is actually a great first resource. Uh, I, I am glad Wikipedia exists. Uh, it's often very good at pointing us in the right direction. And actually, there are a lot of physics and mathematics articles on Wikipedia that are very solid. And But in, in some cases, the historical ones are good, and in some cases, they're not so good. So it, it might be good to get an overview sometimes or a direction to go somewhere else. But for the large part, most of my research was done with like anything from popular books to academic journals, uh, I actually read a lot of, this may be an area where my science background helps, in fact, because I'm not afraid to pick up a paper that's written by a bunch of archaeologists that uses a completely different jargon than I'm used to and try and tease out the information that I think I need to know. So, so yes, it's, it's obviously worth doing research and going much deeper than, than what's just available online. Yeah, exactly. Just as a point to, just going back, you were talking about Cahokia. Owen um, Hubbard wrote us a series of screenplays. One of them was called A Very Strange Trip, which uh, Dave Wolverton then novelized back in, uh, I think it was 1999. And in part, it was a great, 
great deal of it took took place there in Cahokia, and it, it's an alternate history. It's going back in time with a this time travel thing from somebody. But it was just interesting you mentioned that Cahokia because that's he that he used to. You can you have the whole groundwork of the um, the mountains. I mean the mounds and all the 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 layout of the whole. Um, uh, that whole area, and it's like, well, I had no idea that it even existed there in, uh, mm-hmm. in that whole Delta area. Yeah, occasionally there are actually people at science fiction conventions who will come up to me and accuse me of inventing Cahokia and having the gall to do so, and I have to tell them, no, actually, this is a failure of education somewhere along the line. I don't put it in those terms. But yes, Cahokia did exist. It was this great city uh, right in the middle of the country there with 20,000 or more people. As yeah. you said, it's a mound-building city. There are mounds all over the place, and some of them are still there. You can go and visit them uh, near St. Louis, Missouri. And no, it's, it's a fascinating place and a fascinating culture. What was the name of that book again that you mentioned? A Very Strange Trip. A Very Strange Trip. I yeah. wasn't aware of that. I'll look it up. Yeah, and we sent uh, Dave there to actually research. He walked around and went to the hills and the mounds and just did his research on it to to play it out even, you know, more with his, you know, so he could understand more of what it was that um, Elmer Hubbard was talking about in his screenplay. But anyway, that was, when you said that, it was fascinating because I don't, you don't hear a whole lot about Cahokia. <laughs> no. So now you've, you've already brought up here on the subject of um, the wandering warriors. So now where does a person go to actually get that book? Uh, it's available, well, you can get it from Amazon or Barnes & Noble or Powell's or anywhere. Uh, it's actually published by uh, the Wordfire Press, uh, as I said, which is actually headed up by, by Kevin J. Anderson and Rebecca Merster. So uh, so it's kind of full circle, really, when I, when I was talking about meeting Kevin at the Rise of the Future thing earlier on. So, yeah, that's available online. <laughs> if you just look up The Wandering Warriors or look up my name, Alan Smale, uh, you will find it uh, wherever books are sold, essentially, and it comes in hardback, paperback, or ebook versions. And it's actually a really nice volume. They they do really great work at Wordfire, so I'm I was very impressed with how this worked out. Yeah, they are definitely very good. So now, what what's your future hold as as an author? You're going. To, um, I'm assuming that's your Clash uh, uh, of Eagles trilogy. Now that's that's a wrap. That's a wrap. Yes, that's done. I saw the story arc at the beginning. Uh, that I wanted to tell in the three books, and we've got to the end. I certainly could write more books. It's an open-ended, well, the, the story doesn't end in an open-ended way, but it's a big it's a big world out there, and if people wanted more stories in the Clash of Eagles universe, I could certainly write them. But right now, I have no plans to do future books. I might do a short story here or there in that in that world, but uh, right now, uh, there will be no further books in, in that area. For my future, I have a couple of books that I'm working on right now, uh, like the Apollo one that I referred to, and there's another trilogy as well, which I can only describe as a techno-thriller set in the Mediterranean in the 4th century AD, in a completely <laughs> different universe. So that's that's a lot of fun to write. I'm enjoying that a great deal. Uh, at the moment, I don't have a book contract for either of those books. It's actually, uh, we're recording this, obviously, in the middle of a pandemic when things are a little slow in the publishing industry. So we're doing our best, but at the moment, there are no plans. Uh, I don't. Neither of these books are under contract at the moment, and my agent uh, is working really hard to get them in front of editors. There have been a couple of editors who have been interested, but the publishing houses haven't gone for them. So right now, I don't have I don't have anything that's coming out really soon. 
uh, well, I have one thing. I'm, I'm working on it as a short story for an anthology called When Worlds Collide that's coming out from a, from a publishing house called Zombies Need Brains as a successful, part of a successful Kickstarter this summer. I was an anchor author for them. So I'm busy writing that story, and that'll be out next summer. But as far as book-length works are concerned, Rick Wilbur and I are already collaborating on a sequel to The Wandering Warriors, and uh, that's speculative too. We don't as yet have a publisher for that, although I guess it's possible that Wordfire might be interested. And uh, so I have a number of irons in the fire. I'm doing a lot of things. I'm writing in a lot of different areas, but, but there's nothing coming out imminently. I get it. So in terms of advice for an aspiring writer, you know, so now l let's go back, you know, some years when you're getting started and, you know, whatever you had to overcome on your um, pitfalls and stumbles and stub toes and whatnot. What was that like and what recommendations do you have for the aspiring writer? I think one thing that's important is getting your work in front of other writers. Uh, writers read in a different way sometimes than readers do. And experienced writers, beta readers or a writing group or whatever can help quite a lot. Uh, one of the things about the Writers of the Future workshop is that we all critiqued each other's stories. We all read and gave comments on each other's stories. And for many people, that was the first time that they'd had that kind of that kind of other writerly eyes on their work. And I think that does help quite a bit. Uh, you can tell when other people are reading your work, they can often tell you things about your story that you don't realize. Uh, they can tell you where you're being insensitive about portraying some some other people or a group of people. They can tell you where where, where what you think make where you think you've made sense but you haven't. One of the comments that I often get from other readers or from my agent or my editors even are, you think you've explained this but you haven't. Sometimes I'll put nuances and clues in there and I'll feel as if it's obvious to the reader, but sometimes they say, no, you actually have to be a little more obvious. If someone's reading this quickly, they may have not caught up on the clues. And something like that, it's invaluable to have other people reading your work and telling you where you've missed where you've, where you've failed to make something clear, or <clears throat> where the pacing is too slow or too quick. It's actually very fast when you, very hard when you're a reader, reading your own work to figure out whether you've got the pacing right. At least this is something I've noticed in my work and other people's work. Sometimes you're not sure whether a part, whether a section of a work is too slow or whether it's just a welcome relief from the action that went previously. It's kind of hard to tell that for yourself. And that's when having other people's eyes on your work is very useful. So certainly my advice would be to write and to keep writing, but also to have other knowledgeable people read your work and give you feedback on it. That's good. Now, you said you had entered uh, Rise of Feature six times before uh, winning. How many rejects did you have overall? Was, it, was that a thing you had to overcome, like a sense of, of no self-confidence or... You know, before you actually made it and started getting into that um, mode where people really wanted to buy your stuff? I did get quite a lot of reaction, re rejections right off the bat. I am happy to say that of the stories that didn't make it into the Right of the Future contest, of the six stories I submitted at that time, I think all but one of them was later picked up by another magazine or something like that. Okay. So they all I did end up seeing, <laughs> seeing print in the end, although in some cases it took a little while. Uh, so, so that was good. I was, uh, my first sale was actually to a professional market and that was the, uh, a story called The Breath of Princes, which was published in an original anthology from Harcourt Brace. 
And so that gave me a bit of confidence going in. I always knew there were going to be a lot of rejections. I wasn't surprised by that. And I knew that I had to just keep powering on through. And when the stories were sent back to me, and this was in the early 90s, so they were actually, I submitted on paper by mail and the, the stories came back by mail. And I always made it a... a uh, you know, a point of honor that when I got a rejection, I would read it and take it to heart if necessary. Uh, but I would get that story back in the mail and out to out to a different magazine or a different venue as quickly as I could. And I always aimed high. Uh, I always sent stories to Asimov's, even if I wasn't feeling that they were quite good enough for Asimov's, because I don't think you should self-censor. You should let editors tell you if they're not going to accept your work. And in fact, the first story that I told, sold to Asimov's science fiction magazine was right at their word limit. It was a 20,000 word story. And I had no real expectation that I would sell it to them. But I thought it was a good story. And I thought that maybe I'd get some useful comments. And I ended up selling that to Sheila Williams at Asimov's. And if I decided myself not to send it to her, I would never have made that sale. So I guess another thing I'd say to people is be confident and aim high and work hard and you know maybe things will happen that you don't expect to happen that's very good advice and like i've said a few other people as well on on these interviews it often happens that the editor you might have a great story but they just bought a story like that in the current or the recent issues so they're not looking for that that storyline uh quite yet so they'll say no mm -hmm. And it's not that it was a, wasn't a great story. It's just they're not ready for that. So you have to keep on sending it out. And perhaps it's going yeah. to go. Maybe it will go the next time to that editor. Like, wow, that, I forgot about this. Because they have mm -hmm. so many. Yeah. Some of these people, they have. Uh, Al just wrote an article once that the slush readers on these, on these big magazines, they have roughly 30 seconds per submission to go through. They have so much stuff coming. So if you don't grab them and it's not something they want right away, then um, you're out of there. So it's, it's really important that you keep that, your chin up and just keep on going after it and, and just hit it and hit it and hit it again. Yeah, and it's always nice when you get a rejection that actually has some advice from the editor. That was, I think, a big thrill for me when I first got a rejection, but where it had gone from the slush reader to the editor and he decided not to buy it. But he scribbled encouraging things and said, okay, this didn't work for us, there wasn't enough agency in it or whatever, uh, the writing wasn't quite there, but do feel free to submit to us again. Because editors never say that unless they mean it. Yeah. <laughs> if they don't want you to submit again, they won't use those words. So those are very <laughs> encouraging words when you get to that point. For okay, sure. I'll, I'll write you again. Exactly. And sometimes it takes a number of submissions, even to a friendly editor, before you get it right enough or get a story that's original enough that they don't have something like it in their... Uh, in their backlog, as you said, or, and can, can take it. That's great. That's absolutely true. Well, this has been great speaking with you. I'm, I'm so glad that I discovered you again on that uh, bundle that Kevin put together. And, uh, mm -hmm. and I said, well, I haven't talked to anybody about alternate history, so I think anybody that's interested in, in approaching that, um, that subgenre um, as it ties in with science fiction and maybe a bit of the fantastical, but definitely science fiction, they're going to really enjoy this interview and learning uh, some more tips and some um, uh, what works and what, at least what has worked for you that's made you a successful writer of alternate history and award-winning author. Yeah, thank you very much. Yes, and thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The Writers of the Future podcast is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elrond Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to new and amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Alan. Thank you.